Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 172. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk to Dr. Cora Woolsley, the founder of Archaeosoft and creator of the field data collection application, Stratum. Let's get to it. All right, welcome from the high desert of, well, not so high as Reno, but the desert of Quartzsite, Arizona. Paul, how's it going? It's going okay. I've been really busy the last uh, week or so helping a friend with a non-archaeological project. But this friend reached out to me because we've been he's an archaeologist himself and we'd worked mm-hmm. on projects together since 1994. And the stuff that I'm doing now is uh, a lot of GIS and a lot of computer stuff and uh, you know, it ticks all the boxes of right. things I've been doing forever. So I'm right keeping busy alley. with that. How's uh, yeah. how's Arizona treating you? Not too bad. We we came out here for a, an RVing event uh, in Lake Havasu City a couple of weeks ago, and then we, we a lot of people were coming down to Quartzsite because there's a big RV show down here. There's probably thousands of RVs out here in the desert. It's kind of thinned out now, but a lot of people down here just to go to the show, and it's kind of their annual you know get together kind of thing. And we'd never been here, and we're fully self-contained in our RV, so we figured let's go down and stretch the legs on the solar and the other tanks and stuff a bit more, and and see how it goes. So. Yeah. So here we are. And we're going to be here for a little while longer. So it's all fun. Awesome. And I will give an update, hopefully in like a month or so, for those of you that are also digital nomads or, or remote workers or whatever you're doing, I, I should have my Starlink internet satellite dish, the version two, not gen two of version one, but version two, the square one that doesn't hold as many cats. Look that up if you don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, apparently the dishes are self-heated and the cats have been sitting on them. So there you go in the winter. But anyway, (laughs) I'm getting the square one. That's the new generation. Pulls less power if you're on solar like we are, which is nice. And and it has a smaller footprint and a smaller dish. So all that is really cool. But I should get that mid-February 2022 as you're listening to this in real time and have a little bit of a digital nomad report on that. So where are you going to keep the cats? I know, right? Like, where are the cats going to go? So, but speaking of, I guess, doing things remotely and outside and all those things, we have a special guest today that's going to talk. She's going to talk about her software and her company and Cora Woolsley. Welcome to the show. Hello. How are you? Good, good. So, we put probably Stratum in the title and Archeosoft is the name of your company, but let's just talk right off the bat. Tell us a little about yourself. Where do you come from? What brings you to archeology span and and digital recording and all that? Okay. Well, myself, let's see. So I have a a doctorate in archeology. span So I kind of got started a bit late in life on being an academic and being an archeologist. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I had a whole bunch of stuff that kind of happened earlier and and I it's hard it was hard for me not to bring all that into archaeology so when I started 
doing archaeology, I kept kind of seeing these places where we could improve efficiencies, kind of bring in other methodologies, just make it a little bit more rounded and solve problems. And so that's caused me a little bit of trouble in my archaeological career because um, <laughs> sometimes people don't really want to uh, uh, bring in other other disciplines or other methodologies. But oh, yeah. But it's also really been helpful to kind of come at everything from like a fresh approach and or I try to anyway, I try to come at everything kind of, I guess, just thinking outside the box as much as I can. And so so after I graduated with my Ph.D., I really didn't know where I was going to go. I thought I was just going to kind of do what you do, get a job at a university or do cultural resource management, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that didn't really happen <laughs> because <laughs> uh, my husband works at St. Thomas University here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. And yeah. I mean, this is a common problem for academic couples. Like we couldn't really go anywhere because of course, getting a job like that, that's sort of like winning the lottery. So yeah, yep. yeah so I had to kind of uh, scramble to find something here in Fredericton and it's a small town. There just isn't a lot going on for archaeology. So yeah, I basically applied for the one professor job that came up and didn't get it. So, so I started taking on these postdocs that people were just, they just needed general researchers. And I started just like pulling in all of this new kind of methodologies and like I I was working on digital technologies in the health sector and, and other places. And I just got this idea that we could take all of this and just kind of wholesale apply it to archaeology. So so, so I got this postdoc two years ago to work specifically on that um, in the computer science faculty at, at the University of New Brunswick. And it's been really great. So I've had a chance to just really develop this this idea and and make a company. So it's been fantastic. Nice. Okay, great. Well, let's talk about that company a little bit, Archeosoft, and then we'll get into the software. When did you start Archeosoft? And I guess if you were to tell us your mission statement and vision for this company, what is it? Okay, so I started Archeosoft last year in June. I believe okay. it was it was created. Oh no, it was a little earlier than that. I I had gone through an accelerator, <laughs> which was a real nice. trip. Yeah, yeah, I'd never been through one before, and I had to cram a lot of <laughs> stuff into my poor <laughs> overworked brain really fast. Yeah. And but as part of that, I created a company, and so that was that was pretty great. And and it like the company was created to basically get this software developed that I wanted to to develop for archaeologists in the field. And I'd done a ton of research on whether this was something people wanted. And it turns out this was basically like a unicorn. Like this is what they call it in the startup world, where basically everyone is crying out for something mm-hmm. and they, you know, they're already trying to implement it, but it's not working super well. And so, and so if you bring along the right product, there's a high uptake or hopefully there's a high uptake. So, so I was really encouraged by a lot of people to like get this company started right now, get development started right now. So we started the company to develop that software. Of course, we, you know, I, I'll never be happy with just one project. So eventually <laughs> it'll probably go elsewhere. But for now, that's, that's what it is. That's what we do. We develop a product called Stratum. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, let's talk about Stratum because I'm pretty excited to talk about this. I've, we've looked at your website and I have been, I've been in the, I guess, 
getting archaeologists to go digital space for probably 10 years now in various capacities with various companies, including my own and other people's. And it's a it's definitely an uphill battle. So I'm interested in well, we're going to talk about Stratum over the course of this podcast. But one of the things I want to talk to you about first is you did user, I guess, questionnaires, right? You talk to people who, not user, but people, people who could be users of this software and ask them, as you said, like, what is, you know, is this, a, is this a space that's needed? I'm curious as to why they said yes, only because there seems to be other things on the market, even from some of the commonly available stuff like Esri's Collector and things like that, which I definitely have a lot of opinions on. But what were some of the things that the feedback that you got where people said, yeah, what's available now is not working. So we need this. That's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Okay. So, so that was a really interesting experience. And I, I think I went into it kind of like assuming like what you, you were just saying that people are already using stuff and they're just not going to, like, we would be kind of adding something else to an existing market. But Mm -hmm. what I found, and this really blew my mind was that people are using other things. Like they're, they're using S3 collector and survey one, two, three, and Avenza is like a huge one, but the, the issues that people are having. So those softwares work really well and you could never really compete with them because they have such a huge suite of things that kind of go along with them. But what people, what I found people were experiencing was that on the back end, there's just a ton of work you still have to do. And like, there's never, there's never a state. It seems like where, where these softwares really meet the, the, the specific requirements of archaeologists. So like, for instance, I heard that that people loved that they could customize um, Survey 123. So they put a lot of work into customizing it. And that was great. They were able to sort of capture the fields that they that they wanted to capture. But then they'd have to they still have to like organize all that data when they would get back yeah. to the to the office. Mm-hmm. And so you'd still have this situation where you would get you'd get back to your hotel room or whatever and you'd be spending until nine or 10 at night organizing the data that you got. And this mm-hmm. is the place where archaeologists are just hurting because it was okay when our field seasons were from like May to October, <laughs> but that's just not the way it is anymore. And, you know, like the, the two partners who have come on as investors and partners in the company, like they have 12 months field seasons now yeah. and, and they don't have time to be organizing this. They don't have like a, a season where they just, you know, put in huge long hours. And then, you know, when they're done, they get lots of time to spend with their families or whatever. And right. that kind of makes it worth it for them. It's just not like that anymore. So what archaeologists really are hurting for is a software that kind of gets at what our specific requirements are. And those, those are like reporting specifically they're reporting and they're, sure mapping and, and, and putting out the right kind of map. So, you know, it's awesome having the ability to customize, but it, you know, we have specific map types that we need over and over and over again. And then, so having that, and then on the other side of it, going back to the office and being able to just have that output that works for what we're trying to do. So like a, a huge thing that I wanted to put into this was automatically generated reports. So you have your, your artifact catalog just ready to go. There's no Mm -hmm. reason that can't be already done for you. And you know, your photo catalog, so easy. That stuff is so easy. It's just that these, a lot of these softwares just don't, 
they don't think to to make them because they're not on the ground archaeologists. Yeah. Well, let's this is a great point to pause a little bit and talk about some of the stuff you were talking about because I have so many questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's it, first off mapping. Uh, I got a question on that. So I, I've seen mapping tackled before on basically non-submeter GPS type things like Trimbles and, and you know, other type devices that will do the, the mapping on there where you can produce shape files. I've seen people try to do this on tablets. I actually use a, a, a tablet-based program called TouchGIS, which happens to work, you know, fairly well to actually produce shape files, allow you to do those feature classes and stuff like that. I'm curious as to what your guys' capabilities are, because this is a FileMaker-based program, right? Uh, okay. That's, that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious so, about the map. Do you want to talk, talk about? about? <laughs> yeah. 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 I love talking about cans of worms. So yeah. It's yeah. It's a complex problem. It is. Okay. So there's a couple things there. So first of yeah. all, yeah. FileMaker cannot handle that. So, so we we're basically using FileMaker right now just as a database. So not, okay. not as an Got interface. It. Now, the mapping part is tough. So we struggled mm-hmm. with it for quite a long time. The online, like if we were going to do online mapping, that's not as hard because there's all kinds of tools that already exist. You can just integrate mm-hmm. them pretty easily. But sure. it's the online part that's hard. <laughs> the, well, so I don't know what it's like where you are, but here, like there are whole swaths of our province oh, yeah. that aren't covered by anything. And so like, you know, I've made the, personally, I've made the mistake before of having all of the data I was going to need on a cell phone and then getting somewhere and being like, Oh my God, I don't even know where the project is because I can't, (laughs) I, 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 so having to like drive a hundred miles to where there was cell phone coverage just to retrieve the damn numbers that I could put in my GPS. Yep. So, so offline is super duper important. Yeah. And so, so just to, yeah, to start from there. And then we like, we want to, we want to make use of kind of what's out there, but we don't want to be nuts about it. Like we don't want to have a software that's going to overload anybody's devices and like it needs to kind of be integrated into all these other things. And that, that's an issue. It turns out that's an issue. So if you just have something like Avenza, well, you know, that does one thing. That, that program yeah. does one thing really, really well. But if you try and take that and integrate it into a bunch of other things, it's you're going to run into problems. So like we would like to do something like what Avenza does, but we're not going to pretend to be Avenza. Like we can't mm-hmm. do that as well. So so finding where that line is so that our software doesn't get too big. And this is kind of an exploration, can we say, yeah. about what we can get away with. A lot's going to get revealed, I think, in the field testing phase, which is coming up. So, okay. yeah. So I don't know if that answered exactly what you were asking, but. No, it's getting there. It's definitely getting there. Mapping's um, a whole thing. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the other thing is that like there are going to be people who who want GIS capability, like ArcGIS capability. And that's cool. We can't replace ArcGIS. That's that's an amazing software that everyone who wants it and needs it should have access to. But what we can do is we can create a mapping software that knows what archaeologists basically want, want, Mm -hmm. don't don't have a bunch of bells and whistles and will generate a map fairly easily from the data that you collect that is going to meet regulatory requirements. So if you want to use ArcGIS, 
yes, do it. Like, the, you know, absolutely add that to your suite of tools. But I mean, I talked to a lot of people that all they wanted was just Google Earth that worked a little better than Google Earth and that would make mm. a map that they could hand in with a report and that's it. So mm-hmm. theoretically, you could you could set all of that up. You could you could have a settings place for, you know, exactly what you want the map to look like and then yeah. kind of it just puts out an image, you're done. You don't have to go to ArcGIS if you, you know, don't have time or whatever. All right, well that is a great place to take a break. We have so many more questions for you. Paul's little digital hand was raising just before I said this. So, I mean, we are just like chomping at the bit because we love talking about this stuff. Not that we want to grill you. We just love talking about this stuff. Well, <laughs> I do Probably too. a little of both. So. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. So let's take a break and we'll pick this up on the other side. Back in a minute. the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 172. Today we're talking to Cora Woolsey about her company, Archeosoft, and her product, her software, Stratum. And Cora, as you were explaining what the problems you were trying to solve with the software, it dawned on me, I wasn't entirely clear. Maybe you could explain this for me and our listeners. Who is intended to use the software? Is it going to be something that you want in the hands of every field tech? Is it the ha- supposed to be in the hands of project managers? How is this supposed to be used actually in the field? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So, I mean, originally I I thought, oh, this will be something everybody can use and, you know, we'll design it for every user in mind. So doing that customer discovery that I had done, so like talking to, to people about about what they needed, I quickly realized there was a difference (laughs) between field techs and project managers, for instance, and that they were going to need really different things. Mm. So I'd like to have a version for everybody, but this is really geared towards project managers and people who are, I guess, in like supervising projects. So, so Mm -hmm. not just project managers, but people, people who can, who are authorized to take the notes and authorized to change notes that someone else has taken, that Mm. kind of thing. But I wanted to just mention that one thing that that customer discovery revealed was that field techs are a dramatically underutilized source of note taking. So now there's a reason why we don't always give field techs the chance to take notes. We need specific information and, you know, like we like we need to take good, really good notes that that are scientifically valid and so on. And so if we kind of just give it to somebody who doesn't necessarily have that basis yet, you know, that's that's just not doing the best archaeology. But field techs can take notes. They can they can be given tasks to kind of, you know, write down and, you know, keep track of. 
without having to take all the notes. So one thing that I was really hoping to do, so big part of this software is that you have a project that you, you know, you create or whatever. Others can link to your project. So you have like your, you know, your, your project manager and then your supervisors and they can all, they all have access. They're all taking their own data on whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you can have, this is my vision for it anyway. It's not developed yet, but you can have field techs that can also link to projects and you can select what what kinds of data they can take. So for instance, if if you want them to, you know, record levels, depths, but you don't necessarily want them describing the stratigraphy itself, well, you know, that's like that's a, a task that you take off your own roster. So that kind of thing can dramatically reduce the amount of work that supervisors have to do. And one thing that I I mean I've seen this myself and I talk to people who experience this kind of all the time is that you often have one person who's supposed to take notes for a whole site and you'll have your your crew just kind of sitting around <laughs> waiting for you to finish <laughs> up sometimes. And that's not cool. Like, you know, I mean, the, those field techs can be helping you with that process. You know, like something like depth yeah. is labor intensive. Like if you take depths on, you know, 100 test pits in a day, that's yeah. that's pretty labor intensive. So if you can hand that off to somebody who can at the same time be learning as they're using the software, I mean, that's a win win. Nice. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I certainly agree with that, that uh, if we're using these tools to be more efficient in the field and to be better recorders of this uh, inherently destructive process, it makes sense to you know, to, to meet out tasks to the various individuals in, uh, in the most efficient manner. So you can get that data recorded, uh, as properly and as intensely as, as, as adequate as you can. I have a follow-up question. Maybe, I don't know if you've tackled this yet, but especially if you start handing out, you know, reduced task sets on your tablets that go to the field techs, uh, you ne- then have a, an issue of uh, of syncing all that data together. Have you started to attack the problem of syncing data into a common database? Well, I mean, only conceptually. So like, the, I mean, there is a, a database that everyone works on mm-hmm. and like that one is really <laughs> a development problem and and trying to just work out the logistics and, and make the data go in the right place. And that's not really my specialty. <laughs> my specialty is designing the database <laughs> and, you know, figuring out what what needs to be automated and stuff. So, but yeah, that's like, that has to happen. Like you can't have the, and this is another problem with things like collector one, two, three, or sorry, collector and survey one, two, three, is that you often find these syncing problems. So absolutely that needs to be fixed. If we can't fix it, then we should just scrap our software. Cause that's the whole point is to <laughs> sync that stuff. So yeah, yeah, it may come to that. We'll see. <laughs> Well, you actually raise another issue there too, that you're doing one part of the development. Uh, who, who all do you have involved in this and what kinds of, how are the tasks broken up between, you know, front end development, database development, overall product strategy and so on? Well, I have an amazing team. So I was very lucky to find a developer who's just really great at problem solving. So his name is Jeff Mundy, and he's also at the University of New Brunswick. His specialty is uh, gaming and, and basically 
gaming everything. <laughs> so he's done mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things like like creating kind of scenarios that are that are basically games, but so people can train uh, within hmm. those scenarios. So he created one for nice. for uh, nurses, I think, who are mm-hmm. in training. His whole thing is these you know three D worlds, uh, virtual reality, all the stuff, and so this has really stretched him because he's had to he's had to look at databases, which is a whole world. I did not realize this, but databases is like in the digital, like not, not just in the data collection world, but in the designing them, like it's a whole thing. And there are people who specialize in databases. He had to work very hard to get up on that. And then the mapping, like that's, as you know, there are a lot of specializations within mapping. So trying to get up on that, I think was a challenge for him and his team. And then all this other stuff where we had to, we had to really sort through, like, I have this idea about how the data should be collected. And I, I made a prototype in FileMaker Pro to kind of show how that was supposed to happen. But it turns out that doesn't translate super easily to the world (laughs) of development. So having to kind of figure out all that has been, uh, has been a real challenge for Jeff, but he's, he's incredibly versatile and he's really good at, he teaches at UNB. So he's able to kind of snag promising students and bring them in. And so he's, he's been able to bring, in the kind of expertise that we need to to make it happen but not gonna lie there were some hiccups so so just getting the mapping up and running took a while i could imagine (laughs) yeah yeah speaking of some of the other things you guys are doing in the first segment you mentioned wanting to have and i I think terminology is a little different up there but we'll, we'll just talk about this but sure you mentioned wanting to have like export reports basically of some sort like you have artifact tables, you want to be able to just produce that in a, in a usable format. Well, in my experience with working with different clients that have different expectations, when you try to make a, you know, you try to dictate and say, okay, when you collect this, we're going to export it this way. It seems like nine times out of 10, each client is going to be like, yeah, but I want this one little thing to be different. So <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you're handling that is, the, are, are you, coding exports for clients? Are you saying this is how we export? And, you know, when you buy this product, this is what you get, which is there's nothing wrong with that because it'd be nice if everybody came to some kind of a standard. Or are you, uh, do you have some sort of engine where they can sort of build their own export? What's what you're handling in that situation? Yeah. I mean, again, great question. So, I mean, you need to give the the users the options that are, that are going to allow them to use it the way they're going to need to use it. So we want to make these reports, but we also recognize we need to give them the ability to export to a number mm-hmm. of formats. So like, you know, the all of these tables that we're going to be using need to be exportable as Excel spreadsheets. Like that's just, that's non-negotiable. And then, you know, if people are, are doing mapping, they need to have the ability to get that into some kind of GIS program. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it, it turns out <laughs> that that's actually not as easy as I thought it was to sort of <laughs> turn these things into into these different file formats. But, you know, I mean, uh, this is one of the things I really like about my team that I have is that like we they tell me these things. They say, OK, exporting exporting things is not that easy and and can you live without it and you know and i will say well i'll tell you what i can live without when it comes up but this one is one i can't live without and so then then they will just kind of work on trying to make it happen so they're they're they've been really good about understanding 
that I, I know what I want and I'm not going to budge on it. And then, I, but I will budge where, where we can. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's like a good negotiation there, I guess, <laughs> but, but absolutely like the, the ability for users to, to use this data the way they need to, that's non-negotiable. Okay. Well, nice. Paul? I'm actually kind of curious about your process then in, uh, in terms of the software development, because, you know, we've all been involved in software development, all three of us. And having that that pick list of, you know, these are features that are non-negotiable. These are things that I'd like to have. How you roll them out, how you de- decide which ones are more important or more critically need to be done now than other ones. How What's your roadmap look like? Oh, man, it is all over the place. So let's see how best to answer that. And I don't mean <laughs> the specifics of like, you don't have to go into all the, the, the planned features. I, I mean, more how do you develop that roadmap and how do you uh, yeah. how do you work through that with your team? Well, I mean, let me just start by saying that I'm not an easy person to work with all the time. So I, <laughs> I, am, I have a pretty strong personality and Jeff has been just wonderful about kind of just accommodating that right from the beginning. But so I guess basically what our process is, is I build a prototype and they look at the prototype. They're responsible for looking at the prototype and reproducing it. And a lot of times I realize they're not actually doing that. (laughs) They've decided (laughs) to go in another direction and I'm taking a different approach with it than I have in the past where I've just, I've just been waiting to see what happens. I mean, maybe they come up with stuff, that's better than what I came up with. And sometimes that has definitely been the case. And sometimes it hasn't. So for instance, after this interview, we, I have to go and have like an, basically an all nighter where we figure out some of these tables that they left till the very end because they didn't think they were important. So, so that like that kind of thing, I mean, they've had tremendous patience with me and I try to make sure I always have patience with them and what they're talking about and what their issues are with what's going on. And we just talk a lot. So we show each other stuff a lot and, you know, they, they tell me about what their world is like and I tell them about what the archeology span world is like. So, yeah. yeah. I think one of the first times I went down the road of like official software development, not just some offhand form building using a form building application, uh, which that was my first foray into things. But when I went into real software development, we had an uh, Indian software development company and I was basically up at one, two o'clock in the morning, many nights out of many, many days teaching them archaeology so they could understand what we're trying to do. And I did the same thing you were doing. I would put together prototypes using this. I found an app that allowed me to like mock up screens and and different full flows and things in ways I wanted to see them, which was pretty cool. And we basically try to translate that, you know, they're working on database stuff. So I totally understand where you're coming from here. This is uh, uh, speaking, you know, giving me PTSD on, on that little project. <laughs> but um, I, I'm wondering... In the last few minutes of this segment, where do you think you guys are in your development cycle? I know you're using this in the field. I mean, like like real data collection coming up here shortly uh, in the summertime. But where are you in your development process, would you say? Like if version one was we're selling this to people and they're using it out in the field, you know, would you say you're a 
0.5, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.4. <laughs> I'm yeah. curious as to where you think you are in that. <laughs> okay, so I'm terrible with uh, tech release uh, terminology, so <laughs> I'm going to steer clear of that. But <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's where we are. We have developed a prototype, but the prototype is kind of a work of uh, ongoing work of art. Yeah. Let's mm-hmm. just say. As prototypes are. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we are about to finish our quote unquote field ready version. So Mm -hmm. that means that somebody could conceivably put it on a tablet and take it into the field and conceivably collect data. Would I say it's actually ready? No, I would not. But we're going to take the next little while to really tighten it up in preparation for the field season starting in April. Mm-hmm. And so, so at that point, real archaeologists are going to take this thing and collect real data and they're going to expect real, you know, <laughs> results. <laughs> nice. And I'm, I'm really afraid of this. Just, just, you know, full disclosure, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm dreading this. So because, oh my gosh, the last thing I want to do is impact anyone's project <laughs> with my terrible software. It's not going to be terrible <laughs> though. It's going to be great. So they take it out in the field. They get heavily supported because it's definitely going to have issues. And mm-hmm. we, we update it kind of in real time because, mm-hmm. you know, we have to offer that kind of support to archaeologists because it's just, you can't, you can't just not collect the data. And after this, so this, this should last, this, this field testing should last for four months, I'm going to say. And at the okay. end of it, we're going to have a ton of data. We're going to analyze it. And we're going to change what we need to change and update it, get a really amazing graphic designer to come in and and uh, fancy it up. And then we're on to the commercial version. So we nice. are ready to have early adopters. I'm going to say as early as July, but that's going to be a little bit inconvenient for a lot of people because they're going to want it from the beginning of their field season. But we may be looking for early adopters, but then that commercial version we're expecting will be ready for the field season in 2023. Okay. Well, we're going to close out this segment, but I'll just tell you one thing that I heard time and time again when I had an office in uh, Reno, Nevada in a co-working facility. Most of the people there, I was like the only archaeologist as they would expect, but most of the people there were, you know, remote working software developers or working on their own projects in, in various ways. And there was always a mantra that said, if you wait until your version one is ready to release it, then you waited too long. <laughs> so, Because it's never ready. <laughs> so, Gosh, you know what? Right. I just got this lecture from my developer today awesome. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he's experienced <laughs> yeah he seems to know what he's talking about that's right that's right all right well on that note let's take a break and we'll come back and wrap up this discussion about archaeosoft and stratum with cora Wolseley. back in a minute Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 172, and we are talking with Cora Woolsley of Archaeosoft about her product Stratum, a field data recording software. And speaking of the field aspect of that, you've mentioned going into some field trials here in April. How did you, well, to be blunt about it, how did you find guinea pigs for this software? <laughs> was, that, was that a challenge? Did you get some pushback on that, or were people jumping at the chance to try something new? I mean, says no archaeologist ever, but I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'm super lucky because because <laughs> some of the people who have been interested in this like from before it was even a 
project have been really supportive. They're archaeologists. They're pretty big firms here in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and they have signed up. So they're going to be testing this thing. So so one of those companies is Boreas Heritage in Nova Scotia, and okay. they're they're a partner in the development. So they, they contributed some capital and they've been really supportive through this whole project. And so they have a crew, oh, I'm not exactly sure how big it is, but at least 10 people and probably, probably sometimes at least as big as 20. So that's going to be amazing. And they're one of these, one of these uh, companies that works from, you know, probably January to December. So, so April is when they're really going to kick off. And then the other partner slash investor slash archaeologist is Colber. So Colber Consulting is probably the, well, they are the biggest archaeology consulting firm here in New Brunswick, and they sometimes have crews as big as 20 people as well. So, so we, we're going to have a good little kind of group giving us test data and they, I mean, they're just super excited to have it. And I'm telling you, I have warned them. I have told them (laughs) there are going to be growing pains. Some of those growing pains may feel more like broken bones. So, but they're, they are gung ho. So that's really exciting. And then the third, the third partner that we have in this is the uh, province of New Brunswick. So, so they have an archeology span branch and they have a, they have a crew of all first nations, people, indigenous people, and, and they have a contract with us to, to get this thing out there and get them using it. And so they're going to be, they have agreed to be our test subjects as well. So yeah, it's going to be amazing. It's also going to be really hectic. <laughs> yeah. It, it sounds like it. Yeah. 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 That point of the, uh, the first nations field crew is, uh, is interesting because I was wondering, do you have any particular outreach in this uh, reaching out to First Nations, Indigenous shareholders, stakeholders in the archaeology in your design of your software? Yeah. So so that is a really big topic and concern at Archaeosoft. So we're all extremely committed to making sure that, that we we don't create a software that reifies harmful archaeological practices. And to me, like I see that as a danger with something like this. So Mm -hmm. technology can be incredibly uplifting and it can also be incredibly harmful and, and lock people into, into harmful ways of doing things. So we're working right now to, to get as much input from indigenous groups as we can, but this is a really slow process. And I knew it would be slow because, you know, there, there, for one thing, archaeology just isn't the top of most indigenous groups list. <laughs> and for another thing, we, in the software development business, we tend to think we need to move super fast, but that time scale just isn't really practical when you're trying to negotiate, get input, you know, really include people. And so, so we're, we're definitely finding it challenging, but we, we remain really committed to it because it has to happen. I, I'm not sure what it's like where you are, but in Canada, this is like a huge priority is, is trying to bring indigenous voices into various industries. And, and we've been trying to bring indigenous voices into archaeology for a while with limited success, I would say. So we do have, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of indigenous archaeologists now, but, but, you know, oftentimes they end up as professors, so they don't really have an impact on sort of the industrial side of archaeology. 
we have this crew that that operates in New Brunswick that is First Nations, which is really it's really great. I worked with them and it was it was quite an experience, very different from the archaeology I'm used to. But the issue there is that like uh, the, like they had hoped that these these certain these groups would would create kind of an environment for Indigenous people to kind of start as techs and gradually build themselves into, you know, archaeologists that could be permitted. But but what's really happened is that they have stayed labor and they never have really moved on to the university setting because of a lot of barriers. And mm-hmm. so so have they actually brought in Indigenous voices? It's debatable. <laughs> So we, we've certainly brought in a lot of indigenous voices that have been pissed off that they have to work such long hours like that. That's for sure. But like we need people who are changing policy and creating methodologies that that we can follow. So trying to bring those voices in, we think we can do with this software if we can create these partnerships. And that's really the crux of it. So that's that's what we're working on right now. And. It is going slow. Well, that's what everybody says. It's trying to, you know, to improve our field is that those partnerships are the hardest thing to build. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you're baking that into the into the product and into the company. Well, uh, I have a thanks. sort of related question, um, which is that Archeosoft is a female-led company. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at our back catalog on Archeotech here, almost all of our guests have been male, even though I know that there are a lot of, uh, of women and non-binary people who are doing very good work in you know, things that we're interested in on this podcast. Has being a female-led company pose any particular challenges? Do you feel overlooked, dismissed in any way? Has it been problematic or has it not been an issue? <laughs> No, we have not been overlooked, but let's not forget. <laughs> let's not forget. We're at the beginning. <laughs> so yeah. no, I would say that at the stage we're at being a woman led company is highly beneficial. Like we look good to all of the programs that are trying to promote diversity and, you know, it's great. I, I really appreciate that those programs exist, but we're, we haven't yet encountered kind of the next phase where we're trying to, we're trying to get people to implement this technology. And I don't know, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if it's going to be important to people or not. I have certainly found in archeology, span there have been times when being a woman was advantageous and there were times when it was Definitely not. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. In some ways, where we're at right now, where where I'm at, having made space in my life to create this is very much the result of having been shut out of certain places. And probably not just because I'm a woman, probably also because I have a kind of abrasive personality. But nevertheless, (laughs) so where where this software is right now probably could not have happened uh, without my being a woman and without my having had some of those experiences that came from being a woman in archaeology. So I know that's a really complicated answer (laughs) to what you asked. (laughs) It's a complicated topic. So it is, it really is. Sexism is not, it's not like second wave sexism anymore. Like you can't just qualify it the way you used to be able to. There's a lot of dynamics at play and yeah. I mean, that that could be a podcast all on its own. I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. For sure. 
For sure. And like I said, even where, you know, we certainly don't select on this podcast for, you know, cishet males to be on uh, <laughs> guests here, but the, the preponderance of people who've wanted to be here with us uh, have been. And so that is something that always just kind of itches in the back of my brain that, that what yeah. are we doing wrong about this? What, how is our outreach not aligned with the world that we work in because we both work with very competent, very strong, very intelligent women. And it's not reflected here as much as it should be. So yeah, so I'm glad to hear that in your case, uh, it's been for the most part a positive, though I suspect that there's a lot to unpack in that uh, the prior experiences in the field uh, and how that helped get you to where you are. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting that that you've had mostly male guests on your show. I think it is possible that that women often feel like they will be vulnerable if they if mm-hmm. they have too much to say. I mean, I think that they they tend to have a lot to say, but if they say it publicly, like I remember I remember when I was still a PhD student and like the site I was working on was a little bit sensitive. And I was giving a talk on it. I was really excited to give a talk. And they they had asked me if I would do some radio interviews ahead of time to promote it. And I wouldn't. I just couldn't do it. I was I was very afraid to do that because I was afraid that I would say the wrong thing. And and I, I think that women more than men maybe maybe fear that, maybe fear saying the wrong thing in a on a in a public forum. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that might be something that Maybe it is in other things, but in archaeology, I think that's a that's a real thing that happens with women because they can get so attacked for the things that they say. That's been my experience anyway. I feel like that is almost directly tied to the other problem I can see, because when Paul was saying that, you know, we've had mostly men, I I actually hadn't really thought about that too much, to be honest. And which is my fault. I, I really should think about that a lot. But then when I think about how do we find our guests? Typically, I'm I'm seeing news articles or, you know, papers in a journal and, and some headline or something like that, you know, strikes my interest. And then I start reading the article. I don't even look who the author is until I'm interested in what I'm reading. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I find that and it seems like, I don't know, just based on the people we've had on here that nine times out of 10, it seems like it's a male author that has done that. And that's that's why we're contacting that person, because we we rarely get contacted by people that find us and say, oh, yeah, can I come on your podcast? Just because, well, scientists in general aren't that forward with their doing that kind of thing, which is another problem in and of itself. So we're usually reaching out and saying, you know, which is why I appreciate you reaching out back to me and saying, hey, I'm ready to talk about this now. Let's do an interview. That was fantastic. And I love that, that, you know, forward, I guess, looking and and wanting to do this. So, (laughs) well, I, I really appreciate that you that you uh, let me come on your show. (laughs) And I think I mean, I think that's really interesting. I think you're right that like a lot of times when we're looking for for the experts and the people who can talk about a specific thing. Yeah, often they are males. And I think that I think the Mm -hmm. the reason it's this is going to maybe sound weird to some people, but I think the reason is that that worry about talking and saying the wrong thing start starts on like a at a project level on a like a site level (laughs) and just the dialogue that you have with the people who are there and you know how how relationships kind of play out and then and that's why you don't end up seeing 
women kind of calling themselves experts in various things. And just right. just as a point of context, during the course of developing this, all three of the women who had started Archeosoft experienced massive, massive problems with male colleagues. And this is just, we just, we were just like, yep, this is just how it is. And we just had to support each other. And so mm-hmm. right from the beginning in Archeosoft, we knew we had to kind of bake into it how to deal with that kind of thing. And that like, you know, harassment, you know, inappropriate stuff is just not tolerated. So, yeah. Well, I, I feel like I should announce a conflict of interest here for me, but I also feel like <laughs> I need to put you guys together because, you know, I've been consulting for the last like five years with a company called Wildnote and they did not start out in the archaeology space. They started out more in the biology space. In fact, none of the people that work there except for me as a consultant and my wife works for customer service are archaeologists. Like everybody else is either developers or, you know, they work in some other space and, I interviewed the founder there. Um, her name is Kristen, and it's it's mostly a women-led company. There's a few male employees, but it's almost all women, and they're in San Luis Obispo, California. And they've been, like I said, in business for, I don't know, probably six years now, five or six years, give or take. And they're still, you know, on the road and, and still doing things. But I feel like I should just put you guys together because you have <laughs> such, you, you have similar I guess, outlooks and similar progressions and things like that. And maybe just, you know, talking to Kristen about being a, a CEO, a, a founder of a tech company <laughs> and, and software and all that stuff. But, I would yeah. love that. Yeah, I would yeah. love that. I've been hearing about Wild Nose. I haven't actually used it myself. I've been hearing about yeah. it. And I mean, people have such great things to say about it. So, yeah, we mm-hmm. don't actually see ourselves as a competitor. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. And that's why I was hesitant to almost say that, because in some aspects, you're, you're doing similar things, you're targeting similar audience, but in other aspects, you're doing it in a different way. So it, it comes down to something I've always said, because I worked for another competitor before Wildnote and helped them develop out some stuff. And I'm like, it, it doesn't hurt this space to have more options because different areas around the world, around even our own countries are going to want to do things a little bit differently and have some, you know, different creative ways of wanting to do stuff. And to be honest, competition just makes better products. So that is, that is common in every industry. The more players you have, the more those players step up their game and just make a better product for the end user. So I'm, I'm all for it, you know, having, having more players in the space because it just makes the field better and makes our data recording better in the long run. Hmm. I mean, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's about all the time we have in this podcast. I would love to have you back when you're ready to talk about and and you've you've recovered. You're in therapy from your first field session. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's going to be stressful, whether it's a success or not, to be honest. <laughs> so, uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's going to be awesome either way. I mean, there's definitely going to be things. That, I mean, the reason you do this is to find, you know, holes and deficiencies and things you can plug and, and places where you can, you can, you can make it better. So, you know, just listening to the feedback and iterating and, and moving on from there is the name of the game and, and something that's expected. So it's going to be positive either way. So looking forward to having you back when you're ready to talk about how that first experience went, even if it's in the fall, wait for the whole season, whatever it is. But we'd love to have some some regular updates from Archeosoft on the Archeotech podcast. Oh, wicked. I would love to come back. This has been super fun. Yeah. 
Well, it's been great having you. This is, again, I love saying it when I uh, when we have a good <laughs> guest that I learned a lot. And uh, yeah. it was really interesting to hear how you're, how you're attacking these sets of problems. And I wish you a lot of good luck with this uh, upcoming season. Thank you. All right. And with that, we will end this podcast. Again, go check out the links in the show notes to the website that we have for Stratum and Archeosoft and see what you think and, and look forward to more updates in the future. Thank you, Cora, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.